Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You can say, I don't think there should be a completely censorship-resistant platform for speech. What we need to do is adapt our social structures in order to coexist in a world where these technologies exist. Today I'm speaking with author, educator and blockchain expert Andreas Antonopoulos on the subject of censorship-resistant internet. He helps me weigh the pros and cons of unstoppable speech online, and we also get into the toxicity of the online world in general. Hello, listeners. On this episode, I am speaking with Andreas Antonopoulos. He's the uh, Bitcoin and blockchain advocate and author. As it was quite a short interview, I just want to jump in here to give you a quick primer on some of the things that we're speaking about, because I didn't want to waste his time by getting him to explain uh, kind of basic concepts about how blockchains work. And I also wanted to give you kind of an idea of what my position was going into the conversation. So by now, most people probably understand the basic concept of a blockchain and have probably heard of uh, Bitcoin and maybe some other blockchain projects like Ethereum. But for those who are less familiar, it's uh, essentially just a ledger of data, which could be records of transactions, uh, it could be virtually anything else. Um, It could be a website like Twitter, it could be a blog, but the record exists in a large number of locations distributed across a network, which makes it basically impossible to hack. If you were to change the data on one copy, then it would be out of sync with the other copies, so it's easy to identify any kind of fraudulent use. So while that's good for currencies like Bitcoin, you could also use it for other things like voting, for example, or you could create a platform like Twitter, but where each tweet is registered onto a blockchain and can never be deleted apart from by the original user. There are already projects like this online, Immutable Twitter, Immutable blogs that all utilise blockchain technology. It's fairly easy to do at this point. Just to date this episode for anyone listening in the future, it's been a few weeks since the riots on Capitol Hill, and we've seen a lot of right-wing voices in particular being shut down recently. 
we've more or less seen the shutdown of Parler. Donald Trump has been banned off Twitter and so on. And freedom of speech has been taking up a lot of space in the news cycle. Until these recent events took place, I think I would have given two thumbs up immediately to immutable free speech online. But I have been forced to kind of re-examine that recently because it kind of feels to me like the problem of bad information online is maybe more of a pressing concern than people being silenced, particularly coming from a first world relatively free country that doesn't really have uh, an overreaching oppressive government, at least by most people's standards. I think most people would probably agree that we don't want to live in a world where the government can actually censor what you say online. We, It's good to be able to be critical of your country's leaders. But that same technology could also be used, for example, to host online um, any copyrighted material that you wanted to share or instructions on how to make a bomb along with the home addresses of various public officials. So with that in mind, it's easy to see how the technology suddenly becomes kind of a double-edged sword. Depressingly, it seems to me that maybe the real problem here is just that our technology is advancing faster than our ethics are, and maybe we just can't really be trusted with it. But maybe I will feel slightly more optimistic after this interview with Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas, thank you for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. So I will have given you a bit of, uh, given the listeners a bit of background information at this point about you and about your work. Um, but I was wondering if you could maybe start just by telling us why blockchain technology is so important to you personally, because you were kind of out there banging the drum for this quite a long time before, well, you were one of the early people out there doing that. Yeah. So for me, this combines, you know, two of the things that really drive me, um, and those are the desire for justice and freedom in the world and my fascination and enthusiasm for technology. So for a very early age, I've seen technology as a tool that people can use to improve the condition of society by changing systems that are not working and making new systems that work better. I think our the history of our civilization as a human species um, has been dominated by technological change. Many of the things that uh, you know we see as philosophy and politics and society are, are really kind of effects of technological advancement over time. And um, blockchain technology especially, I think is very important because it changes the architecture of governance. So when I look at the world, um, I tend to see things in terms of structure or architecture. How is power arranged? Um, how does information flow through the system? How do decisions throw, flow through a system? You know, very much like I see computers, I see society. Um, and the interactions between people. And the thing that excites me about blockchain is the, is the possibility of not changing human nature, which we can change, but changing the architecture of power and the architecture of governance of society um, so as to have it work with human nature instead of trying to go against it and um, try to bring out the best in human nature instead of the worst. Okay, so something that you mentioned there was freedom and something that we've been hearing a lot about recently is freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to 
bring that round to the main thing that I want to discuss with you today, which is censorship resistance. So I've seen you talk about censorship resistant internet in the past, um, mm-hmm. but I wondered first of all if events of recent weeks have changed your opinion at all, because you were very pro anti censorship, if that makes sense. You were very pro censorship resistance, mm-hmm. and and I and I still am. Uh, I think it's important to have within society the technological capability of free speech. I think the the word censorship is often um, abused in ways that confuse the issue. And I I think there's a big difference between censorship and um, free speech. So censorship, very strictly speaking, and narrowly speaking, is is the use of government authority to, um, to prevent speech before it happens. Censorship is not consequences for speech that has already happened. Censorship is not a private organization saying that um, you can't come into my restaurant in flip-flops and a tank top. Censorship is not... Um, I have the right to start a brawl in a bar and they can't kick me out. Um, All of those things are consequences and private policies. So where things get difficult is the other side of this, which is the idea of free speech, because being told you can't speak on Twitter um, or Donald Trump being told uh, he cannot use Twitter as a platform to amplify his speech, isn't censorship. However, it is a reduction of free speech. It's not censorship because it's a private party applying their own policies. And in that way, it is their speech and their right to apply editorial control, to manage expression on their platform. They have speech rights and expression rights to decide how their private platform is being used, including by them. And they're not the government, so it's not censorship. However, it is a restriction of free speech. And the bigger issue here is that, yes, Twitter is a private platform, as is Amazon Web Services that shut down Parler's hosting, as are the DNS providers that kicked off Parler, as are all of the other various services that restricted the speech of the Parler app and its users. Of course, none of that was censorship in the traditional legal sense, but it was a restriction of free speech. All of those are private platforms. But the question is, are there private platforms that have um, monopoly power, that have taken advantage of regulatory environment and government protection from competition to establish monopoly conditions where they have fenced off a big part of the public sphere and privatized it. This is the exact same problem with, let's say, you decide to go down to the Mall of America and you want to hold a protest march down the main avenue of the mall. Can't do that. It's not a public square. Of course, The problem then is, where is the public square? There isn't a public square. It's all being turned into malls, right? And um, so 
the, the real questions here have to do with how much space is available for speech, uh, where is the public sphere, and how much monopoly power do a few or oligopoly power do a few private companies have? Uh, and that's a much more complicated conversation than simply censorship, speech, and censorship resistance. So if Twitter had been built on a blockchain, and I'm sure there are, well, I know there are Twitter-style services out there that are built on blockchain, which are essentially immutable, so that once you uh, once you post something, it's there and no one can take it down. In a similar situation, how would you feel about that kind of service? Because obviously it becomes very difficult to control the spread of false information. Mm-hmm. Not just they decide that they won't moderate, but they actually can't moderate. Mm-hmm. Would you still be in favour of that, given uh, we seem to have a problem with false information spreading quickly through the internet? I don't think it matters if I'm in favour of it or not. And and I, I think that's the, the bigger issue that we need to discuss from the political perspective as a society is whether or not you are in favour of reality um, reality is. And you can say there shouldn't be an uncensorable form of money. Okay, but there is. Now let's move on the conversation. But but there shouldn't be. Um, sure, okay, fine, I hear you. But there is, and you can't turn it off or stop it. So now let's move on the conversation. Same thing here. You can say, I don't think there should be a completely censorship-resistant platform of speech. Within the next few years, we will arrive at a point where the simple fact will be that there is such a thing. It will be impossible to stop such a thing from emerging. It might be marginalized. It might be limited in function. It might only exist in a few places, but over time, it's not going to remain that way. And then the conversation has to move on from whether it should or should not exist and whether I, whether I think it's a good thing or a bad thing really doesn't matter. Um, we have to understand that if these technologies exist, what we need to do is adapt our social structures in order to coexist in a world where these technologies exist. I also don't think nuclear weapons should exist. Really nasty stuff. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's a little bit of an understatement. But but, yeah, but I live in a world where they exist and cannot be unexisted. Yeah. Well, as much as I take that point, it's kind of um, an unfair parallel because nuclear weapons themselves also kind of serve as a deterrent to their own use, whereas a censorship-resistant internet being used to spread false information, there's not really any deterrent. It doesn't matter if other people have it. Everyone well, will would, have I it. I would argue the exact opposite. In fact, there is a very, very big deterrent. Um, and I'd have to look up the source of the quote specifically, but one of the Supreme Court justices said, the remedy for bad speech must be more speech. So there is a deterrent, and the deterrent for the spread of misinformation is the, the more uh, rigorous and organized spread of information and counter-narrative. And the fact that we currently have at least a generation of people who are unable 
to apply critical thinking to this new medium who have grown up on vetted, limited bandwidth channels where information was carefully curated and spent their formative years uh, not developing any filters because the information was pre-filtered um, simply means that we need to do better for the next generation that will grow up in uh, a wide open information environment where information will not be filtered and where critical thinking and filtering is absolutely necessary. Ironically, it was, ironically, boomers um, warned us that if our generation spent too much time in front of computers playing games, et cetera, et cetera, yep. um, we would lose touch with reality. And then it was their entire generation that got sucked into a misinformation vortex uh, and got brainwashed by Fox News and Facebook and started believing absurdities uh, just because, um, you know, Uncle Joe and Aunt Margie reposted some absurdity from some screaming person in a video and it conformed and really pushed all of their confirmation bias. That generation cannot be taught critical thinking ex post facto. It's really simple. And it's, it's a tragedy because it's created a mental health crisis in the United States. And it's created an opportunity for authoritarianism and very dangerous radicalization and extremism. Not on the left or the right but if you look at it from a um, circular political dimension where the extremes meet, um, it doesn't really matter if you're radicalized on the right or radicalized on the left. Radicalized is radicalized. What these uh, information systems are doing is they're radicalizing a generation that has no immunity, no uh, critical thinking immunization to radicalization. And this is happening in countries that are totalitarian leftist countries. It's happening with radicalization to the left. In countries that are have more right-wing tendencies, it's happening with radicalization to the right. But the problem is that radicalization is so easy to do through these channels because um, you know, when someone says, I have an open mind, do your own research, um, usually that's because mm -hmm. their mind is way too open and they should have had some filters. So you can't fix that by hoping for a return to a world where information sources were pre-filtered, pre-vetted, um, and had a, a, an unbiased perspective because they didn't have an unbiased perspective. They just had a specific bias um, not perhaps a radical bias, but uh, in their own way, they had a specific bias. And now we live in a world where that no longer exists. So we have to, we have to adapt. Uh, there, there's no way to, to turn back time. And do you think this is going to get worse before it gets better? Because our technology to be able to share things and seemingly to be able to convince people of bad ideas seems to be getting worse more quickly than we develop ways of coping with being surrounded For by sure. bad information. Yeah. Um, and some countries are more susceptible to this than others. Um, I think in the United States, the, uh, some of the 
events of the last year, especially during pandemic, but even longer, have demonstrated that some of the weaknesses that uh, exist in um, education, in mental health support, in healthcare support, um, come back as blowback effects that have society-wide uh, impact, right? So the, the, the fact that we're looking at a year into pandemic and people can't figure out that the mask goes over the nose, and you can train a toddler how to go potty in less time than that. It shouldn't be that hard, right? It shouldn't be that hard to make the connection mm. between respiratory virus, cover your exhaling holes. Um, and, and yet, we're still here. And, and, and that, that means that a lack of a robust educational system, a lack of a robust scientific um, uh, science education um, foundation in, in the United States and a lack of a, of a robust healthcare system, 400,000 dead and rising unnecessarily. Um, I mean, at, at least two thirds of those deaths were preventable. And, and so fr from that perspective, you're looking at kind of institutional and cultural failures translating into um, death count. Now that should make a society reconsider some of its assumptions, but it won't. Uh, and I think that's, a, that's the problem here because you can't fix this by censoring parlor. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't fix this by um, deplatforming the, the mouthpiece of the cult. Now, there should be, I think, opportunities in uh, various forms of social media platforms for people to better curate the information that they receive, that they propagate, that they share. Um, and, and a lot of that is surprisingly not available. I'll give you an example, and I don't. I don't know if any of this would work. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. Why is it that I can't tag somebody else's post with a keyword? So you know, when when someone says something that is untrue, right? Mm -hmm. Do I have to wait for Twitter to say that's untrue? How about I tag that post and say, in my opinion, that post is untrue this is misinformation or this is biased or this is radicalizing or this is threatening violence or whatever. And then when you look at the, at the post, it doesn't say Twitter has decided that Donald Trump's recent statement isn't verified. It says 83 million people tag this post as bullshit. If you like the sound of a censorship-resistant website and want to learn more about it, then I have some good news for you. You can get $10 off a blockchain-based web domain by going to unstoppabledomains.com slash r slash brighter pod. As well as being an immutable website that no one apart from you can take down, it also allows people to make crypto payments to you via your domain name rather than by a long, complex wallet address. For example, in researching for this interview, I registered brightertomorrow.crypto. Right now, it's just a holding page, but you can go there and take a look if you like. 
And if you'd like to create your own immutable website, blog, or just set up a simplified wallet address, then you can go to unstoppabledomains.com slash r slash brighter pod for $10 off. This information will also be in the episode description. Back to the show. So this kind of brings me around to actually what the next question was going to be. But yeah, just on that, I think you might get a problem, particularly in the political sphere, that say Donald Trump tweeted something and 80 million people say this is bullshit. Uh, I think the, you know, the 71 million people or however many there are that supported him would probably just completely disregard Sure. You know, that pop up anyway, because they're essentially just al- already pre-programmed to think. And it's, yeah. it's both sides essentially already pre-programmed to think, you know, everyone thinks the other side is lot the one that's lying. Yeah. And if you if you do that over uh, if you do that at the end of a long process of radicalization, it's very difficult to apply. But, but let me give you another example, because, you know, of course, with a por- polarizing figure like Donald Trump, that doesn't work. But let me give you a simpler example. Anthony Fauci. If you look at how Anthony Fauci was actually received and perceived by the majority of the population, uh, he was perceived as neutral, science-based, level-headed, uh, honest, direct, caring, empathetic, right? Mm-hmm. Probably because many of those characteristics are actually who Anthony Fauci is. And so... I would argue, especially in the beginning, if you had like that kind of capability, maybe Trump's posts would get like a 50-50 split. But I would expect that Anthony Fauci's statements would get more like a 75-25 or 80-20 split. And inevitably, someone who comes to this and has never heard of this person and sees that kind of response you know, and we already have this on Reddit, right? You can sort by controversial and see how many thumbs up and thumbs down someone gets. We should be crowdsourcing and um, crowd vetting our information sources, uh, not because it's impossible to have polarized positions, not because uh, you will be able to persuade the the already radicalized uh, extremists on either side and the cult like people who have already been trapped in a certain way of thinking. But because what we saw happen over, you know, probably over the last 10 or 15 years with social media is that normal people with mainstream opinions gradually over time, over years got radicalized. And there have been a number of studies that have been done where, and obviously anecdotal information where you read these 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 um, really tragic stories and someone says, you know, my dad used to be a kind, empathetic man and now he's screaming at the TV for four hours a day and we can't have a conversation anymore. Yep. Um, the question is, could that have been, could that progression have, have been stopped if there was an opportunity to to see how other people are responding. So so I, I don't know how we solve this. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a behavioral um, psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an anthropologist. I'm, not, I'm none of those things. But what I'm saying is if the only two choices are we anoint uh, the Twitter safety team to decide truth for us 
and we uh, give corporate, uh, large corporations the ability to shut down anyone they don't want. And we give the president an un- unfiltered bullhorn to scream um, uh, lies and insanity 24 hours a day. Those are not the only choices. Th- those are not the only choices we face on this spectrum. Uh, and all of them are bad. Uh, the way they've been presented. And I don't know what the good choices are, but, um, you know, I have a big problem with corporations deciding what is truth because uh, corporations have a pro-corporation bias and and will and also apply, um, especially in the United States, a type of perverse morality that I find quite disgusting. Uh, that's the one where... Uh, a female nipple is the end of the world, an apocalypse if seen by anyone under 13. Um, but a beheading is, you know, or a war movie or, um, you know, extreme antisocial behavior is fine. That's fine, right? So that's not morality. Yeah. At least it's not my morality, but it is corporate morality. Corporate morality is really weird. Um, and I don't want that to be the the common denominator of social morality. Um, and I also don't don't want um, to see um, platforms that allow information to be propagated uh, unrestricted, but then don't actually offer users a way to curate their own information intake. I'm not talking about stopping other people from saying to other people whatever the fuck they want. That's going to happen. And people will be able to, I, and, and I am in support of that. I don't believe in censorship. Can I curate my own feed? Can I curate my own information intake? Right now, I can't. Right now, if I open Twitter, I have to expose myself to the full fire hose. Um, I don't want an echo chamber. But I do want to curate my own attention so as not to invite the world's worst people direct access to my dopamine center. I don't want to plug them in to my attention center. And, and right now, I don't have a choice. If I want to do my job uh, as, as someone who does education on social media and interacts with a very large audience. I have no risk of being in an echo chamber. Even if I've blocked 60,000 people, trust me, there's another half million people I can interact with and who interact with me all the time. I'm in no risk of being in an echo chamber. Um, but every time I open Twitter, every time I open social media to do my job that I have to do, I basically open the door of my mind and attention to a horde with no ability um, to protect my own psyche. Uh, And I'm not asking anybody else to do it for me. I'm asking for the tools. And this is user interface design. This is not platform. This is not censorship. Um, This is give me technology tools so I can apply critical thinking outside of my own head, right? Just like just like we do other things, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that does make sense. I mean, I don't really use a lot of social media myself, but Twitter is obviously not particularly filtered. Whereas if you look at something, 
I guess it's still not that filtered, but something like Reddit, you're kind of following topics rather than following personalities. So it does feel like you get less of what you don't want in your feed. I'm honestly much more comfortable on Reddit because what I can do is I can curate my feed into categories and I can have multiple user IDs that I use to curate my feed. So just just for your information, I have a happy mood, I'll call it my happy place, uh, Reddit account that I don't post from. Um, and it's all cute animals and made me smile and empathy and no small victories and um, human achievements. And uh, it's, it's all curated so that all the groups are about compassion, empathy, success, motivation, it's basically an oxytocin pump direct to my brain. So when I've had too much of Bitcoin Reddit or politics Reddit or whatever, I can just with one click switch accounts and just be bombarded with puppies and unicorns and funny videos and babies making funny faces and, and replenish my oxytocin reserves. Um, and take down my adrenaline. And I, I know that when I'm running that program, I can actually see my shoulders creating separation from my ears. Um, it's great. I love that. I love the ability to do that. I wish I had even more tools on Reddit to do that. And, and with Twitter, I've done the same thing. You may notice on Twitter, I don't follow anyone. Um, all of my follows are on lists. And the reason mm -hmm. I've done that is because I've grouped the people I follow into similar categories. So I have lists that I follow that are about crypto. I have lists that are about infosec. I have lists that are about politics and law and current events. But I also have lists that are about motivation and um, and uh, comedy and things like that. So I can decide which list I want to spend time in. Um, to curate. But these tools are all very underdeveloped. And part of the reason they're underdeveloped is because it is not in the interest of Twitter or any of the other social media companies really to hand my attention back to me. They want to drive my attention by algorithm and preferably drive it to their advertisers and sponsors, right? So, it's not in their interest mm -hmm. to give me the tools to manage my own attention. And, I, and a lot of that, ironically, is solved by another aspect of blockchain, not the censorship resistance, but the currency. You see, the thing is, on the internet, we currently pay for content with micro violations of privacy and the abuse of our attention. So if I'm getting free content from one of these platforms, it's because they are collecting information on me. So they're violating my privacy and they're doing it on, on such a mass scale and such a small um, granular level that I don't even notice it, but it builds up, you know, tiny little leaks of your private information, interests, profile, etc. And they're using that to drive advertising, which basically assaults my attention and tries to keep it captive and plays with my dopamine receptors with these algorithms. Um, that's not free content. 
that's content that is the most expensive content possible because I'm paying for it with my psyche. I'm paying for it with my mental health. The whole of society is paying for this content in mental health credits, and we're bankrupting ourselves, right, from a mental health perspective. We're broke and broken by the economy of attention and privacy violations that these systems have created. You know what? I'd rather pay in dollars or Satoshis. Give me micropayments. Give me strong curation tools. Let me pay the creators of the video that made me laugh a penny multiplied by a million people and give them an income to make more videos that make me laugh. Cut out the middleman. Let me pay the creator directly with micropayments. And the primary reason why the entire internet is an advertising-driven economy is because the economies of scale of payment systems drive centralization. And the only way really to make the economy work is to concentrate audience and concentrate advertisers on the other side and then drive one to the other aggressively. But micropayments and decentralized currencies actually change that equation. They allow me to engage directly with a creator or as a creator to engage directly with my audience. Um, and earn their attention and then earn their actual money rather than trying to violate their privacy to pay for my life. So ironically, it's not the censorship resistant that gets us out of this mess, although that's going to be an inevitable part of our future. It might be changing the fundamental economics of content delivery and creation. Okay, so I know we're just about out of time here, so I'm just hoping I can get uh, one final comment from you. Um, if you could just imagine you were appointed as some sort of technology czar, where might you put your focus to start with and what kind of changes would you like to see over, say, your first 10 years? I've been asked this question in a variety of ways before, and my answer is usually the same, which is, as my first edict, I would abolish the office of the technology czar. As my second edict, I would establish... Uh, that no such office must ever be created b again because it offers too much power to one person, and then I would resign. Um, That's an I, excellent I question, Dodge. Well done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but to answer more more accurately, um, I don't think we should be looking for benevolent leaders to make better choices for everyone. Um. Because when you make someone a leader who can make choices for everyone, the first thing that goes out of the window is the benevolence. Um, it is not sustainable for a human personality to acquire that much power and not be corrupted. The problem is the architecture of power. When you put someone at the top of the pyramid and power flows up and decisions flow down, um, that puts so much pressure on the personality of a person that it breaks them. Uh, as the saying goes, I think this might have been Teddy Roosevelt. I don't know who said this. Um, to see a man's true character, give them power, right? Or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, yeah, don't give them adversity, give them power. So I would say... What we should all be doing is we should all elect ourselves, our own technologies are, 
and rule over the kingdom of me by making better personal choices in technology. And that is scalable. Um, we cannot simply look at technology as something that is benign or unimportant or where we don't need to put in too much effort and just open ourselves up to whatever is given to us. Um, we need to think very carefully as technology being uh, an interface that can actually directly affect our mental health, directly affect our mood, our personality, our behavior, and carefully curate which technologies we allow into our own lives. Just because a technology exists doesn't mean you can or should use it. Um, and I'm not going to tell anybody else what to do, but I am going to tell myself what to do. And I think that's where we should all start. On that note, maybe you could uh, tell people what to do if they want to learn more about you. Is there anywhere in particular they should go? Yeah, if you look for my username, A. Antonop, um, you'll be able to find me most everywhere on the internet. But I have um, about 600 free videos that you can watch about the philosophy, politics, um, economics, and historical importance of Bitcoin and open blockchains. I've written five books that you can find. Um, and uh, most of my content is open source and free to read, free to watch, free to listen in, in one or other formats. Um, so, yeah, uh, if people want to support the work that I do, um, I'm actually supported entirely by voluntary donations and contributions from my audience. I'm not sponsored by anyone. Um, and people can find me on Patreon for that. Okay, Andreas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Chris, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Brighter Tomorrow. As this is a new show, we don't have a regular release schedule, so I strongly suggest you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, at BrighterPod, or join the conversation on Reddit at r slash BrighterTomorrowPod. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review, as it really helps us to climb the charts and reach more people. Finally, you can email us at BrighterTomorrowPod at gmail.com if you want to say hello. Thanks again, and see you next time. 